Today is Wednesday. It is 11-11-2020, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We pray for focus as we now turn our attention to you and your thoughts. We thank you for those who are here, those who may still be coming. We pray for this world and uh, as the pandemic rages on, uh, we pray that uh, people will uh, be able to overcome this virus and not the death toll will not rise and that uh, a vaccine will be forthcoming. We pray also for uh, the believers in the world, that we can continue to do the work that you have put us here to do, that we can be single-minded, uh, keeping our eye on the hope that is set before us. All this we ask in Christ's name, amen. Right. So, as you know, we are studying in the book of Romans. We happen to be in Romans 8.29 today. And uh, just to note, if there's questions, there are questions about anything we covered in any previous verse, please uh, raise those questions. Uh, but we are, I mean, I could really talk more about 828, but we're going to move on to 829. There's so much there as well. So I will pause to see if there are any questions or thoughts before we head into Romans. Floor is open. I have a question. Go right ahead, Dave. Sure. I grace always precedes judgment. Am I correct? Grace always precedes. Grace always precedes judgment. Right. God always gives grace before He gets judged. Right. Um, is that right? Is there a scripture that says? Know, is there a scripture that says that or something? No, I just, I just. I'd like to tie a scripture. Well, I would, I would say from creation, uh, uh, grace, I guess before we answer, we need to think about it a little bit. Uh, but God certainly condemned the entire world, including Adam, for Adam's original sin. And in that case, condemnation preceded, certainly came before uh you know, or kind of before grace. He condemned us, and wow. then he saved us. Oh, so he gave us an opportunity to serve. <laughs> so there's an example of judgment before grace, Dave. But, but I, okay. I, th I think you need to qu quantify what you're saying more, like grace before judgment as it relates to what? Well, I know um, in, when a verse, I don't know the scripture says that the devil did a Christ, but uh, he gives us um, common and efficacious grace before we heard the gospel. And then, like he told Paul, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. So the question I thought about that was justice will always be at the end of it. And grace will come first. Like the Bible said, we always, we always, we always, we always appear at the justice of Christ. Hmm. So we just want to uh, look at it and say, well, we did good or bad. But grace is before that. Am I, am I right with that or I could be wrong? Um, so what do you mean by grace? Well, the way God look at things, he always gives us grace before he finalizes things. Yeah, well, what, what is grace? That's what I'm, that's, that, that's what, I'm what is grace to you? So when you say he always gives us grace, what do you mean he always gives us grace? What is it, what is it that he gives well, us? Well, grace is the grace that, that, that God has, not us, though, right? But we do share in the partaking of the divine nature, like you said, the Peter. Yeah, it does say that, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I can't really say I, I can, can agree with that statement, although I can't say I disagree either, because... <laughs> It depends on what, what it is you're referring to. So you, if you are more okay. specific and you give me a verse and say, oh, this, with this verse, is, 
Is this grace before judgment? Well, first of all, God is merciful. Well, I, he he, he let's is. Let's give an example. In Revelation 20, when the books will be open, that's a part of judgment. God would judge those. Yes, absolutely. Not according, according to their works. Yes, yes, he will judge that's, the great white throne judgment. Yes. God mm -hmm. always gives you grace first. Am I correct? Always gives you grace first. So what did grace do for those people? It, it gave them an opportunity so that they don't have to show up at the great white throne judgment? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it leads yeah. Yeah, so he didn't just judge people um, without giving them an opportunity to, uh, to receive salvation. Sure, that's true. Yeah, if, that, if, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, so they did get, there was grace offered to them before judgment. Okay, but well, that's what I was referring to. Oh, okay, then yeah, I would I would agree. Yeah. So so did you have a was there was there another thought that you had behind that or? No, one thing I'm looking at that also says Peter says we are partakers in the divine nature. Okay. So mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with grace. Am I correct? I would say it has something to do with grace. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I mean, the fact that we we share uh, in, uh, like it says, that we are partakers, sharers together in the divine nature. I would say that is a bestowal of grace. For sure. Yeah, we're identified with Christ. That's grace. I mean, that's the baptism of the Spirit. We didn't earn that, right? All of us were baptized right. into no, one body. We can't earn, right? Right. That was sort of right. We I'd say it's we grace. We can earn that, right? Yeah. Definitely is grace. Yeah. yeah. Even like what he gave the Apostle Paul when he said, "My grace is so so physically." When Paul pleaded three times to to move that thought in, 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 in his flesh, but Paul had a line when he when he when he made that prayer request. Mm -hmm. And that's how God and that's how God looked at Paul. Yeah, so his grace was sufficient for, and so there would be grace in provision, right? So God's saying there, I have provided for you in grace, so yes, it's enough for you. Okay. Yeah, so Paul learned through that experience that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. But I can also open it up to others. Maybe I'm missing something here, so others may see something that I don't. So I, let's let's open open the floor to others. Other thoughts. Well, uh, you know, again, I, I would I would say that uh, it's all depending on context of the particular scripture um, I mean if we go back to the Garden of Eden um, it certainly was God's plan to judge the entire world including Adam and his prodigy and um, his dying you shall die and uh, that was a curse that if they ate of that tree and in that case uh, but that was God's plan to judge and then uh, offer a plan uh, in other words he condemned them before he gave them the opportunity to save them uh, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so you know I guess there are scriptures that indicate the reverse. Uh, so I, I would, I would say, all depending on the context and the scripture that you're referring to. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would say, if if there's a phrase like that that's out there, "grace before judgment," that it would, it would need to be qualified by uh, the context. So. 
then you could. I'm sure there may be some scripture that can that does support that, but I I wouldn't say across the board. So, but context is key. Other thoughts out there? I had a, a very general question. Uh, it's not very specific, uh, but it has to do with Old Testament prayer mm-hmm. and New Testament prayer and the means by which we pray. Um, I was reading today a little bit, and uh, for instance, Moses, uh, when he was leading the Israelites, and I think this was the golden calf scene when they were doing all kinds of things, uh, Moses went out and prayed uh, for Israel, and and because of Moses' prayer, Israel, the Lord says, he spared Israel. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he uh, he talked to Lot, and pre-adventure, if there were 50, I think he started with 50 righteous, he would mm-hmm. save uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he went down to 30, then he went down to 20, and even if there were 10, he would spare them. Right. And he couldn't spare them. Then there was a case, I think, of, uh, I'm, I'm just mentioning random cases that come to my mind. Uh, I know that David, uh, his son Solomon, as mm-hmm. the ruler, had slipped in the, uh, some slipped into some things, and the Lord spared Solomon's kingdom because of David's prayers. So uh, my question is, uh, Old Testament uh, uh, believers praying for believers, uh, is it done the same way uh, as when they when they didn't have the power of the Spirit and an individual who didn't have the Spirit, <clears throat> how could he pray? We know that David and Moses were given a endowment, which was special power to accomplish what God had planned for them. But I'm saying the normal believer, does he have the same power of prayer, uh, of the ability to pray to God as a priest, as the same way uh, a New Testament believer who has the baptism of the Spirit and who has the the Spirit of God who directly communicates to him. And there is no, no, it's, it's, it's a direct communication. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly or not, but it's kind of general. But uh, are they, I don't see how they could be the same. Well, I mean, the examples you gave are more about intercessory prayer. And I think we still have intercessory prayer in the church age. I mean, you have the right and... Uh, and you are encouraged to pray for other believers. Paul in Ephesians said, pray for me that words may be given me that I may boldly go out and make known the mystery of the gospel. And, and there's, so there are examples where we should stand in the gap for believers, uh, others who don't know. Now, certain, certainly the Holy Spirit is an intercessor for us. He prays for us in our weaknesses and when we don't know better and um so intercessory prayer is something that is a part of uh i would say all dispensations i don't god god's hand can you know can be moved by our prayer i do hear some background noise maybe if you could put your phone on mute if if you're not directly speaking that might help so and if if we if we can can anybody hear background noise besides me? I just want to make sure we got some a good conference here. Yeah, I hear something. Yep. Is it when I'm speaking? Resuming. So. So Doug, so, so Doug, to be more specific, I, I guess, uh, I guess my question is, the uh, those were Old Testament uh, heroes that I've mentioned. Uh, most of them, 
Uh, but I'm talking about the normal believer who by faith in Christ was saved. Uh, the same way Abraham was. And they didn't have the power of the Spirit who directly communicated for that individual believer the same way as the Old Testament. And I'm talking about his prayer, intercessory prayer, communicated to God the same way. I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to say otherwise if, you know, because the examples that were given are in the Old Testament are given around people of faith and people who uh, may have been prophets, priests, and kings. But there was also other women, uh, you know, the, the women who lost her son. Uh, I can think about Elisha. I can think about, uh, you know, other examples where women prayed or men prayed. Yeah, so, but in general, prayer is a privilege we have to be able to reach God through petition, thanksgiving, right? These are things that we have as, an, as a part of uh, battlefield conduct. We should be praying, right? Praying is, is a good thing. Uh, and I would encourage it for everybody. And I, would, I don't see it being discouraged anywhere in the Old Testament. So, so I, would, I wouldn't, and maybe uh, I, don't, I don't understand fully what the question is, but, but if it's just praying for others, now it does, we know there are certain rules. We cannot uh, coerce the volition of somebody who's made up their mind otherwise, but we can pray for them. God may still change circumstances in their life and people get a different look at things. They may make different decisions. So I, I've seen that happen, and uh, so we never know. Even if it's, uh, it says that we ought to pray for our enemies. Even so, we don't we don't know what might happen when it comes to prayer. God has power, but we know He won't make anybody believe. He won't. We can't say I'm praying for somebody to be saved, and then no, and then I'm knowing they're going to be saved. That salvation is up to them. They have to make a, a decision. When it comes to believing in Christ, so I would answer it that way. I think. You know, I wasn't really questioning the power of prayer in either dispensation. Uh, that's not kind of. It's kind of like what I'm asking is because, uh, and I mentioned those saints, uh, those you know those heroes, because they had special powers that God gave them to complete their mission here on earth. So. They had a direct communication with God. Um, what I'm questioning is the average Joe believer, uh, like me in the, in the New Testament, the average Joe believer in the Old Testament, did they have the same communication ability to communicate to God as a believer? I don't think so. I, I, that is my uh, assumption based on what we have. And as I was saying before, the only examples we have are, for the most part, from people who are prophets, priests, and kings. So I, I don't know directly the answer to that question, other than what I would assume to be so for those believers who are saved under the law or Gentiles who are saved. Um, we saw... Uh, examples of Job praying for his children. And um, so there's there's good pray prayer, I would say, for uh, everybody. Why I don't know why it would be different. Uh, because uh, once you're in the family of God, once you're born again, you have the opportunity to petition God, right? to communicate. Paul says, God. I can come boldly to the throne of grace, you know, whenever I want. As a believer, as a priest, I'm just questioning: Do the does the average everyday believer in the Old Testament did they have? Is that the same means of communication through prayer that they had available to them? Well, there were two kinds of believers in the Old Testament: those who were of the nation Israel, those who were Gentiles. So I would say, yes, not that they could come boldly through the throne of grace, the same access that we have. I'm not saying that, but I'm I'm just talking general prayer. I think they can petition God. They have 
they're children of God. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's a, a limitation, but if there was a limitation, if there's a scripture, maybe we should look at that. But uh, I don't know of one right offhand that would, would speak to that. So I would just assume yes. Yeah. I mean, they don't have exactly what we have, all of the, you know, the access to God that we have, but they are in the plan of God. They're saved. They have eternal life. So, yeah, sure. Why not? Other thoughts on, on this question or... Well, let's look at some Romans then. I think that's where we are. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. This is where we are. And you got notes. So I'm proud of myself for sending them before the study. <laughs> so here, Romans 8, 29. So just reading 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we touched on called according to his purpose last week. And, uh, you know, I think that's what we ended with. We talked about being predestined and being conformed to the image of his son. So that is accomplished through the baptism of the spirit. And when that happened, time stopped. This is literally human history was put on pause in order for God to call out many sons into glory. That is the thought that we have to grapple with of, of the age that we're living in. No, it's, gonna, it's not going to make sense to people who uh, only want to see things according to a traditional way. Um, we have Something that is, like the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. We have to orient to something that is completely different from anything we ever knew. So, hence, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have the mind of Christ, the deep things of God, the Spirit will lead and guide us into all truth. And all of that is related to this new information that belongs to this age. That's the uniqueness of it. So heading back, so just looking back at 828, it opened up, we could say, a can of worms when it says that we've been called according to his purpose. Purpose is everything. God didn't give a lot of purpose in the Old Testament. He told them, I'm God, <laughs> and, and what I say is declarative. I'm telling you this, and I declare it to be so, and so and so, and on and on. He didn't tell what, his, what the intentions of his heart were. But we are privy to knowing about God's purposes. What, it, what is in the motivation of his heart. We are, we are given this information. In fact, our whole age is around God's eternal purpose. So, let's get into 829 because that is where this leads us. When he, he tells us we have been called according to his purpose. Let's talk about what that is. So, in the notes... For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So notice in this verse it has brothers and sisters, not just brothers, not just sons, you know. So sons and daughters, you could say, brothers and sisters. So let's look at... Um, the first thought here. So for those who that God foreknew. So the first thought is uh, the word foreknew. It's very simple. It's not a hard word to understand. It's really a compound word. It's prognosco. Uh, now, of course, it's not 
there's foreknew and foreknowledge. So it depends on what, whether it's, you know, what the ending is. But this is pro-gnoske, right? So, but it really comes from the word gnosko. The word gnosko means to know, and the word pro means before. So, so the, the definition then is to know beforehand, that is to foresee, uh, foreknown. These are words that can be translated by that Greek word, ordain or know before. So it's very simple. You know, it's not hard to understand. There's not any complication in the word itself. But now we have to try to understand what is meant by for those God foreknew. There's going to be a lot of scriptures in this. <laughs> we don't have to read them all, but I'll read enough to get to the point of what we're trying to trying to say. So for th for those as it says, so that already just by looking at the text without anything, not all are said to be foreknown. It says those or some. So God didn't foreknow everybody. He only foreknew some. And then that same group of people that God foreknew, he will say he also predestined. And then those he predestined, he also called. And those we're going to get to that, all of that so we can see the progression of. So it's not just that he foreknew somebody. And then, you know, the rest of the words are not related because all of the words that are spoken here are going to be related to the same calling. So if we are foreknown, we are also... Those are the same ones he also predestined, and those are the same ones he also called, and those are the same ones he also justified. I could go on. So just understand that it is a specific group. It's not he foreknew every single person, and every single person is going to go through all of these steps. And that's not the case. So we'll, we'll get into it uh, as, as we go. So And this, this is another thought. Because it is, it does bear on God's knowledge, what God knows. If he foreknew, he knew something beforehand, so it's about God's knowledge. So this, that brings us to what we do know, a theological word called uh, omniscience. <laughs> omniscience, I have it here, is, is God's overall knowledge relative to creation and described as such. Now, you'd be surprised when we, uh, the word, as you know, omniscience is not in the Bible. It, it is, it's really about uh, God. It, it really, the word means God and all-knowing, knowledge and all-knowing. So when you put that together, you get the word omniscience. So this is the thought, is that uh, God knows everything there is to know, but the question is, about what? And I say, God knows everything there is to know relative to or comparative to creation. So we, if we look at some, some of the texts that deal with omniscience, <laughs> this is what, excuse me, you, you'll see where I'm coming from. So first one is Revelation 1.8. And I'm going to go pretty quick so we can get through it. Um, so Revelation Chapter 1, verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I think uh, you don't walk away from that verse saying, who is that? <laughs> you know who is speaking there, and that's God. He's telling you, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. So it's like, I am the A and I am the Z. Don't get me rapping, because I could, I, could, I could put some more, never mind. But anyway, so I am the Alpha and the Omega, which means I'm the first of the Greek alphabet and the last. I, basically, I have knowledge of the beginning, from the beginning to the ending. That's what he's saying. Who is and who was and who is to come. God spans time. God knows all about time. He knows what happened in the beginning. He, he must know what happened in the beginning because he created all things. 
he was there in the beginning, so he obviously knows what, what the deal was. And he also knows what is going to happen on the end. Now, here's something we do not, as human beings, we don't have comprehension and understanding of. How does God know all of these things? God can say what's going to happen prophetically. He could say, well, uh, you know, this is going to happen. Jesus is going to come. And when he does come, this is what they're going to do to him. And this is... They will spit in his face. They will kill him. He knew all of that from the foundation of the world. He could have said, this is what's going to happen. And uh, how does God know? With all the free wills of men interacting with one another, and how does God know all of that so that exactly what he said would happen, happens? Sometimes it's not like, okay, it's good things. Like if we look at the story of Joseph, you know, which is Jacob's son, Joseph, and how he had a dream, and he saw all his brothers bowing down to him and so forth, and the brothers hated Joseph and sold him into slavery, and Joseph was threw him in a hole, and, you know, it was his brother. He was the brother, and they abandoned him. They were going to kill them boy but they eventually a lot you know saw this caravan coming by they sold him into slavery so who would have thought that joseph would have been the king the prime uh, the number one person in egypt who really he was the number two person pharaoh gave him all of his power to run things who would have thought <coughs> that that's the way that story would have come out god would have thought it because god knew it he knew exactly what happened. He didn't make it happen because there were evil things as a part of that story. He, even the, the, the bad decisions that man made were part of that story. So God knew it in advance. And he told Joseph that this was going to happen. Joseph did not understand the dream, but he did at the end when he said, Oh, I understand. You meant it for bad. God meant it for good. So, getting back to our scripture, there's 1.8. How about 1.17? What does that say? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So, this first and last has to do with creation and my the way I see it. I don't see it as, uh, you know, from eternity past, before there was ever anything, and, and you know, and then after creation and then the eons of trillions and billions and of years or whatever we call it in the future after time is over then that I don't I don't see that I see that the bounds are right here first and last right that's clear seems to me and then he says it again or he continues let's right back uh, so then there's uh, uh, 2.8, Revelation 2.8. I'm going to go quick now. I said that before. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We know to the seven churches, uh, the, Christ speaks directly to those, to the messenger of the seven churches. So so there you have it again. To the, I am I'm the first, I am the last. Well, he is certainly the first because all things were made by him. And without him, there was not one thing made that has been made. So certainly we can say he's the first. And we know uh, he's going to be the last as well. He has all knowledge and all wisdom. So so there, uh, 22, 13, we're jumping all the way down to 22. 13. And there's not a whole lot of scriptures that talk about this, just so you know, but we have extrapolated the meaning from this and come up with these theological terms like omniscience. Okay, so 22, look, I am coming soon. Uh, no, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, here you have both of them. I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, right? So now you have three terms here in 22.13 that deal with this uh, God being understanding or cognizant 
of the beginning all the way through to the end, right? The, the first all the way to the last. The beginning all the way to the end. Alpha and Omega. I think, so I think this is telling that God does know through and through all about human history. And maybe not these verses alone, but when you couple them with other verses that talk about God uh, knows the end from the beginning and so forth, uh, and then when you look at prophecy, how God is able to tell what he sees in the future, and he, that's what we call prophecy. God already sees it. He knows it. So then there's some Old Testament passages that we can quickly turn to. One, uh, Psalm 139. Let's go there. I know you guys are flipping pages. Psalm 139. Psalm 1. Boy, Psalm is a long book. Psalm 139. And then look at verse 2 through 6. So it says, You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts afar off. This is David talking about God. You discern my goings out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you Lord, know it completely. So, so there is information about um, how God's knowledge uh, interacts with us. He, we can't know things like that, but God does. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He, he's saying, I can't, I can't understand how you know this, but you do. You do. David was convinced of this, and I am too. I agree. So then there's um, uh, 147, Psalm 147. Let's look at that. And the verse is 4 and 5. So here, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. So he doesn't only know about uh, human affairs. He knows all there is to know about creation. Right? There's God's knowledge stretches into the universe, the sh stars. He knows every single star that he's created. And when we look up at the sky, the stars are like the sands on the seashore. There's no way we could know all of that. God does. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. <clears throat> but notice, he's talking about his understanding of the things that he has made. There's still the boundaries of, certainly he understands everything completely. No limit to what, the very hairs on your head, if you do have hair, are numbered. Right? So God knows exactly every, even down to the minutest detail. He knows every single cell in your body. He knows it completely. He knows exactly how your DNA is put together. That makes you, your physical attributes, you. He knows every single detail that there could be. And then our scientists don't even know uh, all the way down to the ground when it comes to this in the first place. So just don't think about the scientists as the ones who have the greatest knowledge or something. God is the one who has more knowledge than any of them. Science comes from God, not from scientists. So then... Isaiah 4, there's a lot of scriptures in Isaiah. God does a lot of declarative statements. Isaiah 41, so he says, and I'll just pull the few out. Verse 4, he says, Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So we see very familiar language like we saw in the book of Revelation talking about the first and the last. So what is that? We're still talking about the omniscience of God. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. So then 44 and 6. Let's look at that. 44, 6. Okay, so <clears throat> this is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. That's declarative. I mean, that is, I mean, obviously, when we read in Revelation about who Jesus is, now here, Jesus is said to be the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
That is <clears throat> what is termed in theology the sacred tetragrammaton. And so if Jesus is saying that's true about him, then Jesus and here, Yahweh, is the same. They are equivalent, right? Jesus, if the Lord says this about himself, he's also Israel's king and redeemer. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the same one that we read about in Revelation, who declares that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, um, 40, that was 44, 6. How about 46, 9, and 10? 46, 9, and 10. Let's look at that. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So the former things, are those long ago. God has all of that perfectly in his mind. I make known, verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning. Again, we are talking about relative to creation, right? That's what he's talking He's not talking about the, the beginning of him. He's not talking about the end of him. He's, he's talking about us, right? All creation. So, but he knows perfectly within the boundaries of end to the beginning. Let's keep going. That's 9 and 10. And then there's 4812. I think that's our last one. 4812. We're moving quick. 4812. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first. And I am the last. There Again, uh, you, you have God making a declarative statement about who he is. And that first and last, beginning and ending. I know everything about creation that there is to know. Why? Why does God know about all that? Because he created it. So just like if you created something, you know every single detail about it because you had to create it from nothing. You know, had to get the material, you had to you put the material together in a certain way and that material had to function and you had to design it and all of that. So you know in detail about whatever it is you create and so does God he knows intimately about everything and of course that is mind-boggling to us because we don't have the, the the capacity to be able to know all of these things these details God knows macro uh, and he knows micro I mean if you go to the stars and all of their galaxies and every star there is and we can't even no, I mean, the stars are so far away, it takes years for even the light from the star for us to see it. God knows the detail of the entire human uh, universe, and then he knows micro, all the way down to the electrons and protons and all of that stuff, down to the atoms of the makeup of every single thing, inanimate or animate objects. God has the knowledge of the detail. And he has it all. He, he has the capacity. And it, it's not like it's a heavy lifting for God to know that. God knows that. That is not even hard. That's part of his nature to know it. He has that capacity to know all things in that regard. It's easy for God. It's not hard. Even when God created all things, that's powerful. Out of nothing. And creation is said to be the finger work of God. It's not even hard. God spoke and the universe came into existence. That's not hard for God. That's part of his nature. We're getting, all we're doing is getting to know this person we call God. What power he has in his nature. It is certainly not anything that we have in our nature. Our nature is so limited when we talk about who we are as opposed to who God is. Or compared to who God, it, as the angels would say, what is man that you're even mindful of him? What is man that God is even mindful of us? So, so then let's keep going. We got a lot to cover about this. So let's dig into the next point. Uh, God's foreknowledge is related to those who have a definite role in the eternal purpose of God. 
Now, think about that statement, his foreknowledge. So we already talked about his omniscience. So God knows everything about everybody and everything. That's what we could say about omniscience. God's foreknowledge is only to those, right? We said it's particular knowledge related to those who have a definite role in God's eternal purpose. So some verses that we can consider. There's not a whole lot of them, but we can extrapolate a lot from the ones we have. Romans 8.29, the one we're in. For those who God foreknew. Right? That tells me a lot right there. Uh, and then 11.2 is another interesting verse we've got to turn to. Romans 11.2, uh, related to foreknowledge. So it says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So notice, again, it's very specific. Who is he talking about here? Israel. So now we could say Israel is foreknown. Now, there are some Hebrew words that I didn't uh, bother to deal with because we got a Greek word here that we can relate back to Israel. God foreknew Israel. God predestined Israel. Israel is elect, right? They're called. All the same words that are used of the church are also used of Israel. So here's an interesting one for God uh, did not reject his people. And we already gave the definition of foreknowledge as those who are related to God's eternal plan. So Israel, they're not those many sons that are called into glory. Israel is called as a nation. There's 12 tribes and so forth and so on. And they, they're in this world. We, as believers, are not of this world. There's something totally different about the purpose of uh, that we have and the purpose that Israel has. But Israel is a part of God's eternal purpose. It, they are a component part of that purpose, but it is not our purpose. It's not the same as ours. So God has Israel in place. And through Israel, as we read in Revelation, Christ came right, from, the, from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so God used Israel to birth the Messiah. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So we know that Christ came up through that. And Satan knew it, so he attacked Israel relentlessly once he figured out, oh, the line is going through Abraham. Oh, it's through Isaac. It's through Jacob. So he attacked Israel relentlessly. So Israel is part of the eternal purpose of God. God has a plan, Israel, you know, to bring many sons into glory. Israel is a component part of that plan. So yes, they are said to be foreknown. So there, that's an important scripture. There's another one, 1 Peter 1 and 20. We're going to move quickly. We get all the scripture work done, we can make draw some conclusions. 1 Peter 1 and 20 says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was reveal, revealed in these last times uh, for your sake. So, so this is this chosen before, right? It's it's the same Greek word that we have for foreknown, right? So that's why we have it. Doesn't look like it. So in the King James, it says, "Who verily was foreordained," and there's that same word, prognosko, right? It's the same word that we are dealing with. Uh, so that is a. Uh, for, translated in King James for ordained, but the NIV just sort of tried to help you understand the meaning of it, and it just used before. Uh, so, but but notice he was chosen. Who's he talking about? First of all, Christ. Christ. Christ is another person who will be born who is also in the plan of God. Well, I don't have to tell you about Christ being in the plan of God. He is very pivotal. In the plan of God. Without Christ, none of this could be. And I, without Christ, nobody could even be saved. God could not realize his purpose if Christ didn't, he didn't have Christ as the center piece of his plan. And everything pivots on Christ. I like the verse that says, he was born of a woman, born under the law. At the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, in order that we might receive the full rights as sons, the adoption 
as sons. That's Galatians 4. Right? So in that, we see quite a span of who Christ is and even the eternal purpose of God in bringing many sons into glory. All in one, right there. So, so that is important to note. And there's also another verse. Uh, it's Acts 2.23. Let's look at that one. If you want to see here. So Acts 2.23, I always associate this with Judas Iscariot. So here it is. It says, uh, why don't we just read 2.22 and get to 23. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man, uh, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did am among you through him, as you yourselves know. That's an important verse in and of itself. But verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now listen, it's God's plan, right? We, we talked about foreknowledge is always related to the plan of God, right? So, so now this is Peter giving his speech in Acts chapter 2. Right? He's, you know, the whole thing, the Holy Spirit came and the people there didn't know so Peter stood up and he began to give a little sermon here. So, so he's telling them what happened. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So it wasn't by chance that Judas did what he did. Right? So, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So when he says he was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, he's talking about uh, the person who betrayed him, and that's Judas. Judas is the one who hand who got, uh, you know, colluded with the you know the religious leaders uh, to uh, to have Jesus arrested, and that's what happened. And then he says, "And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross." The help of the wicked men are the Roman people, right? Uh, who they got to uh, condemn Christ, and that was Pilate, remember? Pontius Pilate. So you know this, so, so notice who's in the foreknowledge of God. So you could say that the foreknowledge of God is still about the plan of God and those who have a part or a role in the plan of God. That's what foreknowledge is. And we're going to have to move quicker. Uh, so point point E in our notes, foreknowledge speaks of purpose. That's what it speaks of. And even if you look at that wicked purpose, uh, we could look at Joseph, right? How uh, God knew, he figured it out that even wicked hands were going to be involved. It wasn't just the people of God doing God's perfect will, but the, God's plan, and there were actors in that plan. I could think of another one. Pharaoh is a good one. So through Pharaoh, God was able to uh, demonstrate his power and so forth and so on. Right? Pharaoh was used. And we're going to get to that in Romans 9, how he used Pharaoh. Pharaoh was in the plan of God. He's part of it. So, uh, so foreknowledge speaks of purpose. Like for those God foreknew, well, what, what about him? What about him? Did you just know him beforehand? No, he also predestined. So now we know that when we see that word foreknowledge, we are not just speaking of God's omniscience, like his knowledge about creation, knowledge about uh, people in general and every detail and all that. He knows about his specific plan, what he wants to accomplish by creating all things. So, what time is it? Gosh, do we even have time for this to move into this? No, we don't. I'd say we go another few minutes and then you guys are going to be mad because we went too long or something. So we're going to go a little bit more, but uh, we certainly are not going to have time to finish this all because there's a lot of things that we want to talk about in terms of implications. What is all this? How do we put it all together? Gave you a lot of scriptures. So let's get, get to more. Okay, for, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a lot there. So let's see what that means. So what is the word predestined? It's proorizo, 
right? And what does that mean? It's not a really tough word either. Don't get too thrown off by this. It means to limit in advance, that is figuratively, predetermine or determine before. There's that pro again, right? Pro meaning before. So, and then to ordain, to predestinate, right? These are all ways that that word proorizo can be translated or has meaning in scripture. So we are, for those he foreknew, those he also predestined. He also predestined us. And he's talking about us, by the way. Don't, don't project this onto Israel, because no, he's not talking about Israel now. Now he's talking about the church. So he did predestinate. So we, point B, are, were foreknown. That means he specifically, if I'm thinking about the word predestined with that, he specifically ordained that we would be a part of his purpose before time began. And this is before, the before means before the creation of everything, right? So uh, before time began. And he ordained, decreed that our destiny, this is part of it, it's not just to be an Israelite, because remember, they are predestined as well. We're not to be the nation of Israel, but our predestination has to do with being conformed to the image of his son. And, you know, I like to also see in that that same word is used in Philippians 3.21. So I'll turn to Philippians 3.21 and believe it or not, we're going to see a verse that you're always, you're familiar with. So it says... Well, let's read 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. So there you have it. Uh, now, you don't see the word, you know, pro orizo in there, but it is in there. So... Um, so it, the word here is, um, uh, let me just get the actual word here. Fashioned like unto, wait a minute, his glory, according, according to his working, whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. He is able. Uh, where is that word? See, the King James does not have the same language but it, it should be there I will find it from the other scripture stand by Romans 8 let's look at this 8 29 so it is oh gosh it's actually not in Philippians sorry <laughs> No wonder I couldn't find it. You know what is in Philippians? I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead of myself. The word that we're going to talk about next, which is to be conformed. That is the word that is in Philippians 3.21. But So the reason I guess I put it in here is to say that we're predestined, right? This is what our destiny is marked out or limited to, and that is to be conformed to the image of his son. But what also happens in uh, that part of predestination is that we are marked out or limited to. It's not just limited, but limited to. We, we're not something else. We're not Israel. We're not just Gentiles. We're not just Jews. We are limited to whoever Christ is. And our limits allow us to be conformed to that image. So that word conformed is the one we find in Philippians where, where he says he will... We will be conformed or made to be according to the limits that he set for us. So even so, so positionally, we will be conformed. We are conformed to the image of Christ. And how does all this happen? Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? It, it is the positionally we are conformed, but then the resurrection will allow us to be literally conform fashioned to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ we will take our lowly bodies and will transform or conform them 
so that they will be like his glorious body. So that's the word conform, and it's also part of being predestined, our predestination, which was from eternity past. So, um, sorry about that. So that's that's what point C is, is jointly formed, that is, uh, similar uh, conformed or fashioned or like unto. So that's so moving on to D. Our destiny is fixed and we cannot change this. So when I say that, when it's obviously if somebody says you're predestined, it doesn't mean you can't be anything else. And it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Now, say, only saved people could possibly be predestined. And unless, uh, you know, you're talking about foreknowledge where God sees a, a scope of a range of how his plan unfolds in the world. But predestination specifically deals with us, believers, right? There is no case that a predestined person can be an unbeliever. So, in this case, predestined people are, have been taken from those who would believe. God knows who would believe. We already said he knows everything that there is to know. And so, out of that group of people who are believers, he chose some and he, he foreknew them. He predestined them, and, and he called them, and so forth and so on. So that's what's important when we say our destiny is fixed. You can't change this. God selected you to be in this age, and uh, so there's three things right, that we could say about why I say we say we cannot change this. One, he positioned us from eternity past for this plan positioned us is foreknowledge and we could look at ephesians chapter 1 through 3 to illustrate this let's go to ephesians uh, 1 right so verse 3 praise be to god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ so that is what god has saw beforehand about us right so he positioned us that's what we could say he did in verse 3, right? What does it mean that he chose you and, uh, you know, he blessed you with every spiritual blessing and so forth? That's referring to our position. And the second point says, how did he do it? Well, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's Ephesians 1.4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holding blameless in his sight. So that's where predestination, how it comes in, we're chosen. God selected us out of a pool of believers. He could have chose Moses to be in here, and he could have chose you to be in, in Israel. And But it was God's choosing that got us to be in this age. Right? Selecting, God had to select us to be born at this particular time, and then our calling. Right. So then point number three, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. And this is through Jesus Christ. That's 1.5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship in accordance with his pleasure and will. So well, I think we're going to have to end at this point. Um, and we'll review some of this next week. But already you can see how the words are falling together. They're not tough. right? But they have specific meaning. We got a lot of the scriptures out of the way that had to do with omniscience and foreknowledge so now we can understand the uniqueness of those words for us so we're going to have to quit we'll continue with this thought next week let's bow our heads as we close thank you father for this time we've had together and father we pray that you will give us wisdom as we try to navigate through these words that you have given us foreknowledge predestination being conformed to your image and such. And Lord, we're, as we ponder these things, and we pray that you will give us uh, more understanding as we meditate on the words, because this, these words speak of us, of your eternal purpose, and what you planned for us from eternity past. So Father, we uh, pray for this group. This is a special group that we have. Those who want to hear the deeper things of God. And we, we're so pleased that we can talk about these things amongst ourselves and grow in grace. So we, we thank you for 
the group that we have. It is unique. And Father, keep us all safe, protect us, uh, especially uh, the storm that is approaching Florida. We pray uh, for those who are in the way of the storm. Uh, we pray for their safety. And we also ask, Father, that you will continue to watch over uh, not only this nation, but this world as it relates to this pandemic that is raging at the present time. We pray for those who are first responders, those who are in the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, all, all of those who uh, have to deal with uh, the part of the virus where they cannot stay home, but they have to go out into the world. So Lord, we pray for those who are sick this hour, those who have the virus. Uh, we pray that people will have a sense of reason in this country and, uh, and safety for others and concern. All this we ask in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. 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 Amen.